Before I start this week, uh, first of all, I'd much rather be behind this pulpit than where I was just a few minutes ago singing in front of you. Um, and, and God's people said, Amen. Glad I'm not alone. The other thing, uh, I was in conversation this week with, uh, uh, well, as much as someone can be in conversation with somebody on Twitter. Uh, however, uh, I made a promise this week that I would pray for a gentleman. His name is Ryan. I could have brought his last name, but I don't need to. Just um, We're going to pray for Ryan here in just a minute. Ryan and I got into a conversation with regards to uh, some issues regarding pride and, and uh, hockey and that sort of thing. And uh, he has a message for you, and I promised that I would actually deliver that message to you. Um, the message is that he feels sorry for you because you have a hate-filled, homophobe pastor, something along those lines. So message is delivered. I've, I've kept my promise. I promised that this hate-filled, homophobe pastor and his congregation would pray for him. So would you please bow your heads as we pray for Ryan? And I mean this sincerely. I know it seems it is kind of funny, no doubt, I get it, but I am sincere in the prayer. So would you bow your head with me? Lord God, you know who Ryan is. You know uh, the conversation that we had online. Uh, anyone can go see it. Um, there was some exchanges with regards to theology, and uh, Lord, we pray for Ryan. We pray that you would uh, get rid of his um, uh, juvenile understanding of, of your word, and that he would grow up in the scriptures, that he would come to love your law, that he would come to understand your law, and that he would uh, come to see that you are just, and that your law is just, and that you are good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for that. Last week was a rather exciting week, I think. I was excited. It was an exciting week as we looked further at the exchange between uh, the Jews and Jesus. Uh, the conversation, as you can probably tell, is getting more and more heated. And, and as we read through, you're eventually going to see the... Um, the, it ramps up to the, to, all the way to an attempted stoning, right? So this week's scriptures is the second to last part of this conversation, which brings me to ask you all, please stand as we read today's scripture. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 8. We are going to go from verses 39 to 47, from 39 to 47. And the word reads, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You 
are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, Jesus pointed out to the Jews that even though they were biological sons of Abraham, descendants of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, they were actually slaves. The argument goes something along the lines of, you are a slave to what it is or who that you love, right? You are a slave to what you love. This leads us to draw a pretty straightforward conclusion. You are a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. Those are your options. Pastor John MacArthur, I was going to bring the book. John MacArthur wrote an entire book on the subject called Slave. Not hard to remember, Slave. Pointing out that time and again, slavery is inevitable. You are a slave. I am a slave. You are a slave. We are all slaves. But true freedom is to be found in being a slave to Christ Jesus, our King. That's how you are free, being a slave to Christ. If you want to be free, serve God. If you want to have a joy-filled life, serve God. If you want peace that surpasses knowledge, serve God. Furthermore, Jesus introduced the idea that truth was on one side of the equation, and by contrast, the lies of sin are on the other. How many people in our time have swallowed the lie and have placed themselves in bondage by telling themselves that true freedom is found away from God's law? You want to be free? Run from God's law. This is what we're told. More on this in a few minutes. To end it off, from verse 38, Jesus accuses the Jews of doing what they have heard from their father. You and I both know where this conversation is heading, but the Jews keep insisting that their biological ties are to Abraham. They have not been slaves to anyone, if you recall. Jesus, in his zeal for the truth, in his truth-telling, he makes it clear in this week's passage precisely what he means by accusing them of acting on behalf of their father. Now, I'm going to deviate a little from my normal method of preaching. This week, it was actually rather difficult to do the sermon in such a way that I normally do. Normally, I go through, as you know, expositionally, one verse at a time. This week, I'm trying to do a little bit of both. I'm trying to do a, uh, uh, a topical sermon jammed in with some expositional stuff. So I'm not sure if I was successful or not, but why don't we give it a go and find out. Okay, so basically I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. But there are three main points that I want to get across this week, okay? Uh, the first 
thing I want to get across we're going to talk about is who is Satan? Okay, that's question number one. The second thing I want to get across is two fathers are presented. Okay, we're going to do a little comparison between the two fathers, the two paths. And finally, number three, is how our family tree, which path we're on, affects our salvation. Okay? So with that, let's dive into the text. I'm actually going to start with verse 44a, the first half of verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The first matter of importance is the existence of the devil, or Satan as he is addressed elsewhere. Just as the modern movement or enlightenment came to deny the existence of God, it also turned around and denied the existence of the manifestation of evil in the person and work of the devil or of Satan. So they got rid of God, but they also got rid of evil. We can all see the problem here automatically for anyone who has two eyes open is that that makes nothing good and nothing evil, right? However, more of that later. Jesus, for the first time in the Gospel of John, introduces us to Satan. We had seen from chapter 3, if we go back to chapter 3, we saw the concept of darkness and light, right? And light, the light, it says, came into the world. The light, of course, is talking about Jesus, right? Jesus is the light of the world. And people what? People loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. John 3, 19. So what do we know about Satan from the Bible? Who is he? The Bible does not give us a lot of information regarding Satan's beginnings or of his fall. When you really looked at it, it was funny because when you looked at the Old Testament, um, there's not a lot in there. There really isn't. There, there, depending on your interpretation, right, depending on your hermeneutical lens, you could use Ezekiel 28 verses 12 to 17, and it might help with that. From Ezekiel, we have a description of the king of Tyre. It says right, right there, he's talking about the king of Tyre. And then it's, it, a lament follows. But many in church history have understood this to be typological of Satan. So it's two meanings. It's talking about both. It's talking about the king of Tyre, but it's also talking about Satan. In the description, we have Satan being described as perfect in wisdom and beauty. Perfect in wisdom and beauty. His beginnings were in the Garden of Eden, in the presence of God. He was anointed a guardian cherub. A guardian cherub. A cherub is a powerful angel, right? Until... He was there until unrighteousness and violence was found in him, and he was cast out of God's presence. So that's Ezekiel's description in, uh, in, in chapter 28. Isaiah writes in chapter 14, again, providentially verses 12 to 17, to make it easier for you to remember, maybe, that the morning star, Lucifer, attempted to take the throne of God for himself, that he wanted to be in the place of God. Now, this is all very interesting, but the fact of the matter is, Ezekiel was most definitely talking about the king of Tyre, and Isaiah is most definitely referring to Babylon. 
We cannot say with any sort of certainty that there is a double meaning here and that we can attribute these characteristics to Satan himself. We can't be sure. Regardless, we don't just write off his existence, right? We don't write it off. Well, we don't know, so therefore he's not there. Because Jesus here is definitely telling us there is someone called the devil. Regardless, as I said, we don't write it off. So we have in Luke's account, chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus also says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is a reference to the judgment of Satan. Of those that believe in the existence of Satan or the devil, he is often misunderstood as being someone who is God's equal. So now we're talking about, we, we now accept that he does exist. Now who is he, right? And many in church history, even today, have really misunderstood the power, what we might call the characteristics of the devil, okay? He is not God's equal. There is not good over here and fighting bad over here, and boy, we don't know who's going to win. That's not how this works, right? It's not an epic battle between good and evil with God representing the good and Satan representing evil, and the earth is the battlefield. Even though most Christians know how the story ends, spoiler alert, God wins, right? Just in case you didn't know, God wins. The problem is that far too much power and influence has been given to Satan in some circles. So let's take a minute to clear things up. Number one, Satan is a created being. Satan is created. God, by definition, is not. God is the uncreated creator. God created Satan. Satan is God's devil. Satan is not in any way, shape, or form a threat to God. God is omniscient. He's omniscient, meaning he knows everything. Did you realize that you can't teach God anything? You can't teach him anything. And from before time existed, God knew everything, right? He is all-knowing. Satan is not. Satan does not know everything. Satan can be wily. Satan can be crafty. Satan can guess well. Being a spirit being who's been alive since creation, you learn some things, right? He can see trends as well as anyone, but don't be fooled. He doesn't know everything, nor can he. He is limited in his knowledge. Next, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at once. There is no place where you can go where God is not. Right? Nowhere. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. So interesting enough, when I hear some of our more charismatic friends talking about struggles and feelings of oppression, they oftentimes invoke the name of Satan as their adversary. It is Satan who is bugging them. It is Satan who is bothering them. It is Satan who is oppressing them. I have news for you. If Satan is a single being, which he is, 
and he's limited by time and space, which he is, do you think it's reasonable that his battle against God and his battle against the kingdom, he's going to waste time with the likes of you or with the likes of me? I would make the argument that we're kind of small potatoes, me included, right? Not a chance, I would say. We're, we're too small. We're not, we're not significant enough. Satan, like any wise demon, like anyone who's been around for a while that sees where the battlefront is, is going to concentrate his efforts where it will make the most difference in his mind, of course. He's going to go where I believe the Spirit is moving the most. He is going to cause as much disruption wherever God, in the name of, not in the name of the Holy Spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit, is moving the most. That's where Satan will be. That's where the battlefront will be. I pray that Satan one day bothers us here. That means the Spirit's moving, man. The Spirit's moving. If he's going to come here and bother us here, he's moving. The Spirit's moving. Things, good things are happening. Listen, Martin Luther claimed that he struggled against Satan. Martin Luther did. Threw stuff at him, he thought. Right? Considering the Reformation, and considering Martin Luther's role in the Reformation, I don't doubt it that the Holy Spirit was moving and Satan was bothering Martin Luther. I don't doubt it. Until such a time that you or I are about to make history that affects the world, I don't think we're worth the time. A simple demon or two would suffice. Right? Satan himself has probably better things to do. Next, God is omnipotent. Okay? God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over everything. God, uh, Satan, sorry, Satan is not sovereign. Satan is not in control of anything. Satan is not all-powerful. And Satan is easily under the proverbial thumb of God. Both Jesus and Satan are presented to us in Scripture as lions. That's true enough. They're both lions. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan walks around like a roaring lion seeking, seeking someone to devour, right? This is symbolic language used to illustrate that Satan is, he's no lightweight. He's no lightweight. He's a powerful angel, no doubt. However, on the other side, we have Jesus, the lion of Judah. The lion of Judah is God incarnate. And he is infinitely more powerful than any creature can be, and that includes Satan. Infinitely more powerful. At no time can Satan inflict anyone with anything without God's knowledge and, more importantly, his permission. The story of Job makes this painfully clear. Now, with all that being said, do we as Christians then just ignore Satan and his minions? No, that would be unwise. Why? For two reasons. First, he is an angelic being. He is an angelic being. As an angel, he is far more powerful than humanity. 
He is far more powerful than you or I could be. Whenever we see angels meeting men in Scripture, we see men terrified, generally speaking. We even see, sometimes see men bow down in worship. Angels are not to be taken lightly. They are not fat babies with wings carrying harps. Secondly, because Satan has his means and methods of operation, most of which are devastating to those who don't pay heed, much of Satan's tactics and methods are spelled out in Scripture in the description given to him. His very name, the devil, means adversary. Adversary, what does that word mean? In the simplest terms, an adversary means an enemy. It is someone who stands against you. Satan is so named because he is the adversary. He is the one who stands against God. He is the one who stands against God's kingdom. He is the one who stands against his church. He opposes all that is good and right. In other places, he is referred to as the prince of darkness. In a sense, Satan rules over all that is wicked in darkness. He is the father of lies, as John says, where Christ is truth incarnate, Satan is the adversary. He is opposed, he is the opposite of all that is true, which makes him the father of lies. He's also called a deceiver. I often will engage atheists, and every once in a while you'll run into someone that says something like, I'm sure you've heard this before, I think there's even a country song that, that kind of goes along these lines, I'd rather party in hell than cry in heaven, or something just as silly. Somewhere in people's minds, they have it in their heads that being an enemy of God, God the party pooper, of course, right? God's the party pooper, is to be friends with Satan. I have news for those people, and I have news for you. Satan hates you. Satan hates you. His demons hate you, right? Even if you're against God, he hates you. He cannot help but hate you. And the very reason why he cannot help but hate you is because you, whether you are an enemy of God or a friend of God, you are made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, every time Satan or his minions look upon humanity, looking upon you and me, he sees the image of God and he is reminded constantly of God when he sees you. It doesn't matter how wicked we act. It doesn't matter how much we might run from God. It doesn't matter if we spit in his face, blaspheme his name. We will never make it to the so-called good graces, as if there is any, of Satan. Satan hates humanity. He will use humanity to his ends, for certain, 
but he will never look upon any human being with admiration or love of any kind whatsoever. This is part of the deception of the devil. This is part of the deception. In fact, the situation is even worse. He's been called the accuser, Revelation 12.10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Satan knows that God is a righteous and good judge and that he cannot abide in sin. God cannot excuse sin. Therefore, he points at humanity and he declares them guilty. Look at the sin. Look at the corruption. Look at the wickedness of this people. How can you excuse them? As the Lord is pleased with every sinner that repents of their sin and puts their faith in Christ Jesus, the accuser, the adversary, is pleased every time a dying sinner dies in their sin. Satan stands as a prosecutor in court. He is the prosecutor, urging the court to find you, the defendant, you and I, the defendant, guilty under the law and deserving of eternal damnation. That's what he does. Why? I think it's because Satan and those angels that fell with him aren't afforded the same opportunity. Jesus did not die for fallen angels. And in fact, the Bible tells us the lake of fire was made for them. The lake of fire was made for them. And that is their end. And they know it. Christ didn't die for them. His salvation achieved was for humanity. Those made in his image. His accusations, however, fall on deaf ears. Thankfully, as Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is our defense attorney. Talk about having a good lawyer. He is our propitiation. He is our redeemer. Romans 8 verse 33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Even Satan's accusations are not enough. For the elect of God, he may accuse, but we have redemption in Christ. It's important to dispel a few more of the misconceptions we may have. Satan is not horned. He doesn't, he's not red. He doesn't have great big horns. He doesn't have a long tail, forked tail, right? This was... An image created by the church in the Middle Ages in, in order to mock Satan. Uh, with the idea that because Satan is said to be vain and prideful, that's the best way to fight against him, is to mock him. Hence the outfit. However, the reality is very, very different. Satan appears as an angel of light. Satan appears as an angel of light. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Verses 13 to 15. Satan does not do his damage to humanity by announcing himself. He doesn't show up at the door in his red costume. Knock, knock, knock. Good afternoon. I'm Satan. Yes, that's Satan. And I'm wondering if I could interest you in, in some sin. I'd like to tempt you to do some sin. You know, it's like a, va- a bad vacuum salesman or something, right? I've got, I've got murder on for half off. Interested? Right? He doesn't do that. Satan being an angel of light is what we might call sophisticated. He's sophisticated. He shows up on the scene looking like a good guy. He looks like a good guy. His his ideas seem good. His theology seems solid. Maybe a little wonky in places, but it seems solid enough. He's got an awesome sense of humor and he speaks extraordinarily well. Silver-tongued, we might say. What's not to like? But as they say, the devil is in the details. It was once pointed out to me, the contents of rat poison. Do you know what the contents of rat poison is? Rat poison is over 99% food. Over 99% real food. Right? It's presented as food. What kills the rat is the less than 0.5% that's not rat food. That tiny amount is what kills the rat. It's just a tiny amount. Likewise, Satan, appearing as an angel of light, is not what he appears to be, but is more like that rat poison. What looks good and inviting ends up in deception and death. It is the subtlety that kills you. So how should we think about Satan? Should we be scared? Should we be looking around every corner? The answer there is no. First, as already noted, Satan is only a creature. He's one angel. I would think where the Holy Spirit, as I said, was moving most is where Satan will be. Second, our lion, the lion of Judah, is stronger than him. We are told, by the way, one of the most interesting questions asked about Satan and demons is, can Christians be, uh, what's that called? Possessed, thank you. Can, Can Christians be possessed by demonic forces? And the answer is, no. If you are a Christian, that means by definition, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. The Holy Spirit lives in you, right? And we are told in Scripture, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God does not share his space in his temple. 
You, being Christians, are His temple. We are the temple of God. Satan's and, Satan and his demons, sorry, have no ability to inhabit you. You cannot be possessed if you are a Christian. It is healthy and good for us to acknowledge that Satan exists. It is healthy and good for us to acknowledge he has angels we call demons who work on behalf of Satan. But it's also good to know his limitations and it's also good to be aware of how he operates. An excellent resource that I would recommend, if you haven't read it yet, is C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. If you have not read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, it's kind of a disturbing little book, uh, but it is disturbing only in that C.S. Lewis, in the way that he writes, writes stories in different ways about how demons, using deception and using our own sinfulness, how he uses it to turn churches against one another, how he uses it to turn Christians against one another to implode the church. So in that regard, it's a little disturbing, but at the same time, it's also very, very eye-opening that allows you to see the ways in which he is deceitful. Verses 40, 41, and 42, you are doing the works your father did, verse 40. We have one father, even God, verse 41. And if God were your father, you would love me, verse 42. We've seen numerous times in our study of the Gospel of John that confusion abounds between Jesus and his hearers because he talks often about the heavenly realm, about he speaks about spiritual things and his hearers interpret him from an earthly perspective. So he's speaking spiritually, everyone else hears physically, right? In verse 40, Jesus once again accuses the Jews of doing the works of their father, meaning, of course, Satan. Their response is interesting. First, they start by declaring that unlike Jesus, this was the assumption, they were born legitimately, meaning under wedlock, between one husband and one wife, and in the earthly or physical realm, right? That's, that's how they start. Who is Jesus to be talking about family trees, they're thinking, right? But they also know by this time what point Jesus is making, and they get out ahead of it by declaring that God is their father. God is their father. They are now solidly on the same page. They are both talking about heavenly realms. Jesus responds with, if that were true, you would love me, not seek my death. You're trying to kill me. This harkens us back to the first chapter of John, verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. While the Jews keep referring back to Abraham as their father, the fact of the matter is that they are not true children of God, but they are children, sons of Satan. How does one determine which family tree they are in? Satan's seed is characterized by Jesus as those who do their father's work. They are lawbreakers. 
How are they lawbreakers? Well, let's start with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They rejected Jesus. Therefore, they rejected the Father. By rejecting the Father, they have replaced him with something or someone else. They're lawbreakers. They were guilty of murder, for in their hearts they were seeking to kill him. This is a violation, of course, of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. They were guilty of lying, and they would continue to lie even after Jesus is put to death. They are and will continue to break the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Jesus points to their actions and their deceitful hearts as evidence of who they are taking after. God's seed is characterized by the works of Abraham. What were those works? Genesis 26 verse 5 I think is most helpful. God is speaking to Isaac, carrying on the promises given to Abraham, and he says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge... My commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That the covenant will continue on to Isaac. Right? Unlike the Jews who heard God's voice, the Jews heard God's voice through Jesus. What did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. Abraham was obedient to God's voice. Unlike the Jews who wandered from their task of being a light to the world, Abraham was obedient to his task, even when those tasks seemed impossible. Unlike the Jews who broke God's laws and statutes and commandments, Abraham kept them by faith. What did Jesus say when his family came and were trying to interrupt his teaching? Matthew 12, 46 to 48. While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus pointing to his family tree. Who is part of God's family? The answer, he pointed to his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever what? For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, my sister and brother. Whoever does the will of my Father. The point Jesus is making is that sons and daughters of God are the ones who obey him. Starting with the first commandment. Jesus is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. You must love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love the Father by loving the Son. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Third and final point. This is just another one of the many scriptures that gives light into the question of How are some saved and how are some not? What's the difference? There are those of God and those of Satan. There are those that hear the words of God, and by hearing we mean to understand and obey. I would include the love of Jesus, the love of God's law, etc. 
After all, the point Jesus is making here is not that the Jews are hard of hearing. It's not that they can't hear. They, they can hear perfectly fine. They even, it's not that they lack comprehension. They know what he's saying. It's not like Jesus is using fancy words and they don't know what he's saying. Like, like the sentence structure is somehow foreign to them, right? The point is that those who belong to God, those that hear God and come, come in obedience and love. They come in obedience and love. Why? Because they hear him. They come because they hear him. Which leads us to Jesus' conclusion regarding the inability of the Jews to be children of God. The inability of the Jews to be children of God. Listen to how he says it. You don't hear because you are not God's children. You don't hear because you are not God's children. It's really important to point out two things very briefly. If you're a Christian, you're not a Christian because you did anything. The difference between those who hear and those who do not hear is their identity. It's their identity. My sheep hear my voice and what? They come. Why do the sheep come? Because they belong to the shepherd and they love their shepherd. That's why they come. You are not of God because you decided to come. You came because God gave you ears to hear. He gave you eyes to see. He gave you a new heart and he gave you new desires. You came because you hear and you hear because you are his. You hear because you are his. Goats don't become sheep. You don't become a child of God because you hear. You hear because you are a child of God. Who gets glory in this situation? God. God gets the glory. If Who gets the glory? Where did I go? Who gets the glory if being a child of God was because of something you did? You do. That's the difference. However, one day I'm going to preach through Romans, God willing, and I can really dig down into this, but for now I've got to leave it there. So in conclusion, thank you for your patience. In conclusion, how does one conclude this dog's breakfast of a sermon? I'm going to make the effort. Jesus, in the text, offers us two situations. He offers us two family trees, if you like. One family tree is God's. The other family tree is Satan's. There is not a third option given. That's it. I don't know of any person who likes to think of themselves as children of Satan. Even unbelievers find that idea repulsive, except, of course, for the few really, really depraved ones. Jesus has made it crystal clear to everyone that your physical family tree means nothing. Your physical family tree means nothing. You cannot, especially children, listen up. Children, you cannot inherit eternal life from the faith of your parents. It, it doesn't transfer. 
right? This may sound like bad news to some of you, especially for those growing up in Christian homes, but the fact of the matter is the Jews took for granted their position as God's covenant people. It was the Jews that took it for granted. We are offspring of Abraham. We have the blood of Abraham. Therefore, we're saved. Wrong. They paid a heavy price for their faulty assumptions. The warning for us as Christian families is that God's covenant promises, these being for you and for your children, the promises are for the children as well, still requires faith. Children, you still require faith. You must come and bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just because your parents bring you to church does not mean automatically that you are saved. It's not how it works. Each and every person in this room on your own accord say with their mouths and mean with their hearts that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is why it's imperative that parents take the exhortation of raising up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord seriously. Faith doesn't rub off. It must be taught. And as it tells us in Deuteronomy, it must be taught day and night. Satan's family tree is the broad road, the road that leads to destruction. God's road is the narrow road, the road that leads to life everlasting. So I want to close with just a few questions. Number one, do you hear his voice? Do you hear his voice? What I mean by that is when you read the scriptures, when you sing his songs, when you listen to godly preaching, do you hear him? Second, do you have a desire to be obedient to his word. Now, I said earlier that Abraham was faithful. Abraham did. Abraham obeyed. But he did so in faith. That's the point, is he did so in faith. Abraham did not fill the law perfectly. Abraham broke the law, just like you and I do. But he had faith. He had faith in the word of God and he obeyed in that faith. His desire was to be obedient to the word of God. That's what his desire was. Is God's moral laws and exhortations cumbersome and heavy to you? Or do you find them light and freeing? Which is what they're supposed to be. Question number three, has God's word found a place in you? Remember, Jesus accused the Jews of saying, my word has found no place in you. Has God's word found a place in you? Number four, Jesus talked about abiding in him. Are you abiding in him? And if you are abiding in him, can you show the fruit? 
Now, very briefly, this is difficult for some of us because we all fall. Every day we do something, say something. We're disobedient to our parents. We say something that maybe we shouldn't have said, um, and, and, and we stumble, and we can get frustrated, and we ask ourselves, do I show any fruit? Am I making any progress? Am I being sanctified by the Word? And it can be frustrating, especially if you take just a snapshot. However, where were you a year ago? Where were you two years ago? Have you grown in the Lord? Can you look back and go, I remember that. That's where I was. And here I am today. And maybe it's not as far as I would like it to be, but I'm further ahead today than I was. I love God more today than I did last year. I love God's Word more today than I did last year. I am more obedient to my parents out of a love and faith for God this year than I was last year. Right? That's the fruit. You're looking for the fruit. These are sometimes difficult and uncomfortable questions, no doubt. But they are questions Jesus put to the Jews. And the Jews failed. We should look at these questions Specifically with the hope that we have within us. We should look at these questions with the hope we have within us. Knowing that God will complete the work He has started. That too is a promise. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much for this beautiful day. I thank you for this opportunity once again to read through the Gospel of John and learn... Lord, we know that you have an adversary, but you are greater than that adversary. And as, as people of your word, as your children, I pray, Lord, that we be wise in our dealings, that we would be uh, wise with regards to uh, our understanding, and that we be not deceived by the great deceiver. And Lord, we are so thankful that even while Satan may accuse us of being the lawbreakers that we are, that we have a greater Savior in Jesus Christ who died upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.